Listener note before we begin. In this conversation, we sometimes use the term women, but more broadly, we mean people who can get pregnant, including trans and non-binary folks. From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, the producer of this podcast and your host for this episode. January 22nd marks the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the landmark Supreme Court case granting the right to an abortion without excessive government restriction. Roe is foundational to abortion access in the United States. Year after year, Roe has weathered legal attacks. But this year, due to the conservative majority on the bench, the threat to Roe v. Wade is at an all-time high. A case heard by the Supreme Court on December 1st addressing a Mississippi abortion law posed a direct challenge to the precedent set by Roe. The decision will come out in June, but scholars who listened to the arguments are deeply concerned that this could be Roe's last anniversary. Back in 1973, Roe was an important step towards granting reproductive autonomy to people who could get pregnant. However, Roe itself was never enough to address the long history of government surveillance over the bodies of the most marginalized. In her book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood, law scholar Michelle Goodwin examines the reproductive health and rights debate and explores how legislators increasingly turn to criminalizing women, predominantly women of color, for both proceeding with a pregnancy and for ending one. Today, Michelle Goodwin is a professor of law at the University of California, Irvine. She's also the founding director of the University of California, Irvine's Law Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy and its Reproductive Justice Initiative. Finally, Michelle is also one of ACLU's very own executive committee members. She joins us today to discuss the lived experience of reproductive control and Roe v. Wade's impact. Michelle, welcome to At Liberty. It's a pleasure to be back on this show and to be in conversation with you, Kendall. Thank you for having me. We're very pleased to have you back. As we mentioned, this weekend we'll celebrate the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. In a recent New York Times op-ed, you wrote about Justice Harry Blackman and how he recognized in his majority opinion nearly 50 years ago that the barriers to a decent life are enormous when there is an unwanted pregnancy. For many, they're insurmountable. Roe v. Wade was a 7-2 decision. What has changed since 1973? Why do justices on the court today not see what Justice Blackman recognized? There have been a number of changes over time, and I'm glad that you mentioned that Roe itself was a 7-2 opinion because it wasn't close. Of those seven justices, five of them were Republican appointed. Justice Blackman himself was put on the court by Richard Nixon. And I say that because as some people come to believe that this is just simply a Republican position, that is just simply not the case. Even 30 years before Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court was already laying foundation that then we see in Griswold v. Connecticut, Eisenstadt v. Baird, and then Roe v. Wade. So what's changed in the in-between? Well, 
What's changed in part is that in 2008, Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. Now, some people would say, what in the world would that have to do with any of this? Well, between 2010 and 2013, as documented by the ACLU and the Guttmacher Institute and some others, there were more anti-abortion laws that were proposed and enacted than ever before. That is, more between those three years than in the 30 years prior combined. It would be a mistake not to see this as connected to race. It would be a mistake to uh, not see this as also coinciding with a robust movement to up in voting rights, to challenge the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and to enact the kinds of laws that would lead to voter suppression and also uh, significant gerrymandering. Now, we've also seen a shift on the court since 2008 and 2010, and that is we have seen that uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she passed away. She's no longer on the court. She was replaced by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who in her private writings has made very clear uh, that she is not a proponent of reproductive health rights and justice. We have also seen Justice uh, Kennedy leave the court, retire, and we've seen Justice Kennedy replaced on the court by Justice Kavanaugh, also not a fan of reproductive health rights and justice. We've seen a dramatic change in the tone of the court, so much so that it's being argued that Chief Justice John Roberts is at the medium of the court, and he has been a dissenting vote against other conservatives on the court in preserving Roe v. Wade, essentially. I wanted to to ask you about something that Justice Amy Coney Barrett said in the oral arguments from the Mississippi case. And she basically implied that since adoption exists, there's no reason that an abortion should be necessary to protect people who can get pregnant, which I think a lot of people listening to that who've been pregnant could, could not disagree more. What did you make of that statement that because adoption exists, people who can get pregnant should have to carry a pregnancy to term? Well, it's a perspective that misses a lot and that doesn't pay attention to the Constitution first, but also um, health and science. The Constitution first is that uh, the Constitution doesn't allow for the coercion uh, of individuals for the violations of their bodily autonomy uh, simply because there is some other alternative of a thing, right? That just simply doesn't exist in terms of our constitutional jurisprudence. The United States leads all developed countries and others in terms of rates of maternal mortality. We rank somewhere between 50th and 54th in the world, depending upon what matrix you look at. But then just in terms of level setting, it ignores health and science as well. Let me underscore that even more. And that is that abortions are very safe. So a person is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term. The World Health Organization compares the safety of an abortion to a penicillin shot. 
The other thing that interestingly is missed from that kind of discourse that we heard coming from the court are the ways in which there are racial disparities that also track along the rates of maternal mortality in the United States. If you're Black, you're three and a half times more likely than your white counterparts in the United States to die by carrying a pregnancy to term. So we have to talk about the death penalty aspect of this. And about a decade ago, that would have seemed alarmist. But I think that today people are beginning to understand just what is at stake. And it's hard to ignore the kind of suffering that's already coming out of states like Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, and those high rates of death that Black women are suffering by carrying pregnancies to term. And in many of those cases, women who would choose an alternative than to carry the pregnancy to term, and that alternative would be an abortion. Yeah, actually, I wanted to dig into this a little bit further. In your book, you write about how Texas is actually considered, or at the time, was considered the most dangerous place in the developed world to birth a child. And yet now we live with SB8, which bans abortion in Texas after six weeks of pregnancy. When you look at these two dynamics at play operating together, they very much contradict what many anti-abortion activists say is their effort to protect pregnant people by outlawing abortion. Where from history can we see these kind of dynamics at play where people who can get pregnant are being squeezed kind of from both sides? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question. So just as Blackman talks about in Roe v. Wade, how abortion had not been criminalized and illegal in the United States as a forever principle. And that is absolutely right. Abortion doesn't become an issue in the United States that's used for political expedience until around the time of the Civil War. It's kind of a perfect storm coming together with the professionalization, if you will, of a certain kind, and I put air quotes around that, of obstetrics and gynecology. Obstetrics and gynecology was not a profession that existed for a millennia. It was something that we see emerging in the 19th century. And we see it being led by doctors like Horatio Storer and Joseph DeLee. And it's worth noting that about half of the midwives in the United States were Black women, about another quarter Indigenous and, and then white women. And so with the coming of this new profession, obstetrics and gynecology, you can read it in their writing. These guys are deeply insecure. (laughs) They write about how they can do this work and they shouldn't be compared to women. And so what they do is they begin a campaign to push women out of this space and, of course, to monopolize this reproductive health space for them and basically monopolize male control involving pregnancy and reproductive health. And one sees it. We go from about 100% of reproductive health care being controlled by women and done by women to about 1% come the 20th century. It's dramatic. They make a movement to make sure that women cannot be admitted to medical schools. In fact, the American Medical Association bans women from being members. And in fact, they also ban Black people from being members. And the justification was that Black medical schools admitted women right? So this goes deep. But there's another part of it, which is deeply racialized, which is that Horatio Storer, Joseph DeLee, and they use the American Medical Association for this, 
They say that white women must use their loins and spread their loins east, north, south, and west. They're deeply concerned at this time in which the Civil War is about to take shape. They're concerned about the browning of the United States. And they make that very clear. I think about Sojourner Truth. And when she said, and I bore 13 children and saw nearly each one snatched from my arms and nobody heard my cry but God, ain't I a woman? And she's talking about the commercialization, (laughs) the coercion, uh, the monopoly that's had on Black women's reproduction. And in a way, one can see this as being part of that legacy, which has been inconsistent, but all about control. So the first part of control, coercing and forcing Black women into capitalistic reproduction for the economy of the United States. And then we see the coming of the trend about uh, abortion and its criminalization so that white women can produce more. And then we see at the turn of the 20th century, eugenics in the United States to suppress Black women and poor white women from being able to have any children at all. And so we've seen across these trends, which are sometimes inconsistent, when one tries to make sense of it, the one area where we can is that it's been about power grabbing and about control, and that it's never been about the health, the safety, the well-being, the autonomy, the privacy of the people who matter most to those conversations, and those are the people who can become pregnant. Thank you so much for laying that groundwork for us, because I think, you know, we talk a lot about reproductive freedom, I think, without the larger scope of understanding where this all comes from and the dark, dark history that lays the foundation for what we're dealing with today. I wonder if we could break this up to the present day. Certainly these dynamics, you know, still exist. That's why we're talking about them. I'm thinking about the increased surveillance and criminalization of pregnant people that we see in different forms. I was wondering if you could talk through this kind of surveillance that we're seeing now and how that contributes to this double bind dynamic. That too is a great question, and it's just so wonderful to be in conversation with you, Kendall. So the surveillance that we see today also has a precedent and an origin that precedes these times. And that origin, one could mark it as being centuries old, which is in part true, but we can also lay a pinpoint during the Reagan era And that is during this other kind of perfect storm of mass incarceration and the drive to incarcerate black and brown people. Uh, At the same time, the attack on um, women who are indigent. And we, during the 1980s, you know, hear this terminology of the welfare queen. And there's one other layer that's added to that. So we've got the rise in mass incarceration, the attack, uh, a racialized attack uh, on indigent women who are trying to uh, do the best that they can for their families. And this third layer, and this third rail is really important, and that is the so-called crack mom and crack baby. And again, around that, I put air quotes, because it's a time of political expedience, becomes a time of targeting and surveilling Black women. It's a time in which 
prosecutors begin a platform, if you will, an agenda, a a blue book that kind of brings all of this together. We see this kind of rise in the criminal punishment of Black women associated with their pregnancies. The Medical University of South Carolina notoriously had Black women dragged out of the hospital in shackles and chains to awaiting police cars in what was a direct attempt to target Black and brown women who came in for prenatal care at that hospital and who, in fact, were recruited into the hospital by the very people who then purposely turned their confidential medical information over to police and to prosecutors during the 80s and 90s. The Medical University of South Carolina, doctors and nurses purposefully reached out to police and prosecutors to set up a task force and a dragnet. And they purposely targeted only Black women to be a part of this. They singled out crack usage as being the drug to target. But even amongst that, only Black women who use crack. What we know statistically is that the rates of crystallized cocaine use is the same for Black women, white women, etc. No different. But at the Medical University of South Carolina, as part of their arrest program, they made exceptions for white women, with the exception of one. And on this one patient's um, medical chart, a nurse by the name of Nurse Brown wrote on there, lives with Negro boyfriend. So she was kind of dragged in with the Black women, arrested, shackled, sent off to jail, prosecuted, etc. So today's surveillance in a way takes a page from the precedent that was already established, except that today it's even broader. And I think we also see today, at least in the last few years, undocumented immigrant women on the border being held in ICE detention who were, the reports that they were having forced hysterectomies. So you know, I think it lives on. Absolutely. <laughs> it does. Thank goodness for Don Wooten, who was a nurse and also who uh, reported on what was happening in detention centers in the United States, a whistleblower who brought this to the attention of the nation. Absolutely. I want to turn to another group of people that we're seeing kind of harm on top of harm in this um, space. So, Many of us were shocked to see that in both Texas's SB8 law and the Mississippi ban, there was no exception for rape and incest. And I want to be really clear that all of us at the ACLU believe that regardless of whether or not these laws had exceptions, they would be bad laws because everyone deserves the right to access an abortion. But in particular, I want to address this topic. Governor Greg Abbott of Texas suggested that rape will disappear in his state with a tough-on-crime approach. His words obviously struck a chord with you, and you decided to write an op-ed that was published in the New York Times about your own experience having an abortion at 12 after you were raped by your father and the consequences of what this would look like to have this lack of exceptions. Why was it so important for you to share your experience? 
Well, I think there are two things that are important to raise here. The first is that this is extraordinarily unusual and cruel, what we see in these laws, which is that even those who are anti-abortion proponents would stop short um, of what has now been baked into laws like SB8 and also the Texas 15-week abortion ban. That is to say that there was some level of sensitivity, uh, humanity, and understanding that it would go too far to say that a child that's been raped should be forced to bear a pregnancy uh, and also then to deliver then uh, a child should that person survive the pregnancy, should that girl survive the pregnancy, that that would be inhumane, that it would be unjust, and that that would be the same for any person who's, who's raped. But these laws say something very different. And it exposes a level of cruelty and inhumanity that is not being talked about and that deserves to be talked about. And if we fail to pay attention to this important aspect of these laws, there are many people who will be harmed by it. And so I thought it was very important to be able to speak to it. The reality is that there are significant taboos that still exist with regard to sexual assault, sexual harassment, and rape. It's very difficult for people to speak their truths because of the stigmatization, because of the stereotyping that uh, goes along with that. There's still a lot of blaming that takes place in this space. It is not a safe space, per se, to be able to speak about what happens. Um, And oftentimes within families, it can mean um, the destruction of fabrics that are already kind of thin and fractured. So there are reasonable reasons why people would not come forward. And something else that I think is important is that for people who've been able to survive and thrive post those horrible experiences, there are significant disincentives to coming forward. Um, And for people whose lives look somewhat like we might expect the lives to look when you've been so tortured, those people often lack credibility. And so what do I mean by that in in quick form? About 80% of incarcerated women and girls have experienced some form of physical and sexual abuse. The very fact that they have been detained and incarcerated in this society means that they have been tossed away. Now, I do not personally view it that way. I want to fight for those folks. Uh, But that's our society. I mean, let's be clear. We incarcerate girls who have been um, sexually abused through sex trafficking. Those girls get arrested and they get put in jail. We have in states like Tennessee, John School, while the girls are incarcerated in detention, the folks who purchase the sex from them are given the opportunity to go to John School, like going to driver's ed or something. So I found it really important to express just what is at stake and what people go through who are coerced into and who are forced into, who are tortured through these kinds of um, sexual assaults and rapes. And I will say this, as a person who has survived that kind of experience, what I also know is that only 2% 
of people who have experienced pregnancy before 18 ever finish college by the age of 30. So in so many ways in which we look at that, it means a significant burden in the lives of individuals who experience those kinds of harms. And I thought it was very important that given the national conversation that we have, that it's a more robust and complete conversation than the one, sadly, that's been taking place, which leaves out those important dynamics. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the clarity of purpose with which you shared your experience in in saying, I am not the only person that has dealt with this. And actually, our criminal legal system is full of people who have been uh, traumatized in, in a lot of ways. And they've been tortured, quite honestly, you know, because it's it's the trauma. But if you think about it, as I... <laughs> It if let's put it this way, if we were talking about people in the military who were sent somewhere overseas, and someone knocks on their door or doesn't even knock on their door in the middle of the night, opens their door and rapes them over and over again, it'd be everything about our military saying we're not going to allow that to happen. <laughs> all 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 boots on board. We'd say that is torture. That is absolute unacceptable torture inflicted not only on the individual, but on our nation. And we will not stand by that. And here we are, (laughs) Uh, ignoring the fact that this happens in the United States and certainly not giving it that kind of robust response that it deserves. Certainly. I can imagine that your personal experiences have informed and enhanced your ability to to really start these conversations. Having been exposed to your work long before knowing your story, in my mind, you know, it all kind of came together to this moment of like, oh, wow, this is your purpose. This work that you've committed to is stemming from this intersection of obviously what you've been through, but also all the skills and talents and abilities that you've been able to use to this this mission. What has it been like for you looking back on the work that you've done in this space in fighting for Black and brown women and fighting for reproductive access in starting these conversations? That's a really good question. So, you know, as I look at the first thing that I'll say is that I've, I'm incredibly grateful for the work that I'm able to do. And I'm grateful for the capacities that I've been able to hone and, and develop over the course of my lifetime uh, to be an effective voice, I hope, um, on matters of civil liberties and civil rights generally, and then within the broader health space, and then within this reproductive health rights and and justice space. And that, you know, this is a conversation that affects us all. It really does. To the extent that my work has really been able to crystallize uh, what these issues mean for uh, Black and brown women, I would say that that too, in some ways, is personal as well. That is because my maternal grandmother was born in the state of Mississippi. And given my 
understanding of U.S. history, <laughs> my love of her, it's, it's hard not to bring some truth to the surface about just what these issues represent and what they mean. And there are conversations that we have yet to have in mature ways in our country about these histories. What we basically see now coming state by state are calls for censorship. We see the trampling of the First Amendment, um, while at the same time, we see the voter suppression efforts. We see the anti-abortion uh, efforts taking shape. We see a loss of a value of science and integrity. And we basically see from January 6, 2021, an attack on our capital and our democracy in a way that's being renamed and reclaimed. So all of this, I think, fits together, not in silos, but actually in continuums. Yeah, I think that's really, really true. It's very apt for you to put it that way. Um, I want to bring us back to Roe itself, right? Um, obviously, this conversation has grown to in incorporate and encompass the broader themes of control, surveillance, and criminalization of people who can get pregnant, predominantly black and brown people who can get pregnant. I want to bring us back to this moment that we're in where we are faced with the precarious future of Roe. We know that reproductive justice and reproductive freedom are larger than abortion, right? I wonder in a world that perhaps Roe doesn't exist or there are people are listening at home thinking, what can I do? What can I be a part of? How can I think about this and looking forward in the future? Is it all over for us if Roe is overturned or effectively gutted? How do we address this question? And can we use this as a moment to extend the conversation of reproductive justice into a broader conversation than just about abortion, which I think it's so kind of quickly gets tied to. That's right. I think one of the mistakes of the last 30 years or more, actually since Roe, I think a significant mistake uh, too, is that Roe is never enough. And there was a failure to understand the ways in which socioeconomics also intersected with the ability or should have intersected with the ability to actually um, exercise this right to govern one's own reproductive choices. And when the Supreme Court upheld laws, both federal and state, that denied access to public funding for terminating a pregnancy while allowing that funding for labor and delivery, that that was a mistake being made and something worth fighting uh, about for those who uh, framed themselves as being committed to reproductive rights. The people who had most suffered there were black and brown uh, women. And in fact, what we saw in the United States that there was a continuing of back alley abortions that were taking place after Roe v. Wade. And so when one thinks about what a North Star is, part of that people are talking about the Women's Health Protection Act, but even that law doesn't go far enough. That's a first step because that would essentially codify Roe v. Wade. And that's an important step, but it can't be enough 
in my book, I have a closing chapter about the importance of there being a reproductive justice new deal that fully takes into account more than uh, abortion as a reproductive right. I think that when we talk about abortion as part of reproductive rights, um, what we've missed in the civil rights movement, we understood that Brown v. Board of Education wasn't enough, that civil rights had to include not only education, but housing, employment, the right to be able to go to a park, uh, striking down these laws that ban black people from going to the bathroom of their choice, all, all those kinds of things. The failure to see reproductive rights as being just about abortion then means that it's not taking into account socioeconomics, it's not taking into account um access to healthy pregnancies and being able to get prenatal and postnatal care. It's not taking into account sex education in schools and so much more. So to reset and to gain a North Star means, I think, thinking far more broadly and really a reproductive justice 2.0, I would offer as the future that we should be thinking about. I love that. The last thing I want to address really quickly is that you have a podcast. You're on the airwaves, so to speak, with Ms. Magazine on the issues with Michelle Goodwin. So if people want to learn more about your work, learn more about these issues, dive deeper, I think it's fair to say that at Liberty listeners would also be great on the issues listeners. That's absolutely right. I hope all of our listeners take a second to go peruse, subscribe, listen to all the conversations that you're having over there. Thank you so much for having me, Kendall. I appreciate being with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support our fight for reproductive freedom, you can get involved and donate by visiting aclu.org slash endforcedpregnancy. That's aclu.org slash pregnancy. We really appreciate your support. Until next week, stay strong.